Hello, friends. Welcome to Le Vital Core Salon. I'm your host and salonier, Kara Snyder. In each episode, I am here to introduce you to a modern woman leaving her unique stain on the world without letting bullshit or burnout stop her. I was introduced to today's guest, Heather Hansen, by Minda Hartz, who some of you may remember helped inspire the special two-part mentorship-sponsorship mashup that we did back in December. Thank you, Minda. Heather Hansen has spent her life focused on communication and how to effectively harness it for success across numerous fields. With over 25 years of experience as a medical malpractice attorney, Heather has been consistently named one of the top 50 female lawyers in Pennsylvania. Additionally, she advocates, she mediates, she anchors content and stars as a legal talking head. Yet I'm stoked about her book that hit stores yesterday. It's called The Elegant Warrior, How to Win Life's Trials Without Losing Yourself. Heather gathers up all of her lessons from the courtroom and shows readers how they can use their complaints, discoveries, questions, and objections to find their own voices and win arguments without losing themselves in the process. For those of you who have been listening for a long time, you know communication and applying things like asking questions and empathy and curiosity are all super important to me. And I found a true sister and teacher in Heather Hansen. So I am so excited to present to you this episode. As listeners, please help Heather get the word out about her book by sharing this podcast with at least one woman you know. Also, don't forget to text the word SALON to 444-999 to have future podcasts emailed right to you twice monthly. Again, that's Salon, S-A-L-O-N, to 444-999. There's so much for all of you to learn and apply from this conversation with Heather, and you will hear me struggling to keep up in this episode. Heather is one seriously fast-thinking, elegant, and articulate woman. Voila, meet Heather. Heather, you're a soon-to-be author and advocacy and credibility consultant, but you started out as a trial lawyer. How did you discover this was the work for you? I don't know that it was so much a light bulb moment discovery, Kara, as much as it was, I, I like to give the analogy that it's like I'm a creeping vine. You know, there's a thing that says that you should repot yourself every few years because a plant in a pot will only grow to the size of the pot and it won't die. It will just stop growing. And so the idea is that you should put yourself in a new pot every few years to grow. But in my situation, I didn't just hop into the new pot. It's been a little bit of a ivy crawling into the new pot. So I love and still do love my work as a trial attorney. I love my clients. I love standing and advocating for them in the courtroom. But I also wanted to do something a little bit more collaborative and less conflict-ridden. I wanted to do something that I felt would be of service to a larger crowd. And I wanted to challenge my creativity a little bit and really dive into the creative piece of me. So this was a good way to do all of those things and use my 20 years of experience in doing so. Wow. So you're doing all three at once. I don't think I realized that. Yes, I still... So I've cut back on my trial work. I had a much 
heavier trial load than I do now, but I still try cases. Um, I tried a case as recently as about three months ago to verdict and still go back and forth. I actually, we could go off on a couple things. I have a couple of jobs. I also am a host slash anchor at the Law and Crime Network, which is Dan Abrams' um, streaming court TV type network. So I live primarily in Manhattan in order to do that job. But I go back and forth to Philadelphia and New Jersey for my trial work. And then the advocacy consulting and training is international. So that's a lot of travel. Wow. <laughs> it's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot. Heather, can you talk about the advocacy consulting? I can, and I, I'm glad that you asked about it because that word is sort of, um, it's not in the mainstream as much as I would like it to be. So an advocate is simply someone who stands up for something or someone. Um, it comes from the root word to call. So it's someone who comes when called, you know. And so my job for 20 years has been to advocate for my clients, to argue on their behalf, to stand up for them, and to try to help them get what it is that they need. I now use those same skills, the skills that I use to advocate in the courtroom and help businesses and individuals and women and children learn to advocate for themselves, to use those same skills to stand up for themselves, to ask for what they need, to set the boundaries that they need to set, and ultimately to win whatever winning means to them. So is this the milieu that the book comes from? It is. You know, I wrote the book. Well, first of all, I, I wrote four books before this book. I started and stopped four different books. And this book sort of reached the sweet spot. And the idea was that the tools that we use, I think the tools anyone uses in any part of their life is tra are transferable to other parts and can sort of give some illumination onto other parts. One of the things that is a good example is the work that they do at Ritz-Carlton Hotels. You know, they're famous for their service. And as a result, a lot of other industries have looked to the Ritz to learn from them. Steve Jobs had his Apple employees learn from some of the people at the Ritz how to run the Apple bar at the Apple stores because he wanted that same level of attention. And now hospitals are looking to the Ritz and the way that they treat their customers in the hopes of improving the patient experience. So I think that skills like that are human and they're transferable. And I found that the skills that I use in the courtroom are things that anyone can use in order to advocate for themselves. So I decided to write a book to share some of those skills and how they can be used in the world outside the courtroom. Can we talk about what some of those skills are? I would love to. I uh, there's a lot of them. There's a, a the book is a short book, uh, and my work consulting and keynote speaking expounds on a lot of these. But there's 28 chapters, each of them taking something from the courtroom or from the trial experience. So, for example, in civil law, not criminal, but when someone sues for medical malpractice, which is a big part of my practice, or um, uh, you know, other parts of civil law, slip and falls, that type of thing, those cases start with complaints. So the first chapter of the book talks about complaints and how in a lawsuit, 
you can't, the complaint is just a list of things that someone is complaining about. And if you stop there, the case goes nowhere. There's no resolution. Nobody's happy. Nothing happens. You can know the complaints. You can recognize that they exist. And then the next steps are moving past the complaint towards a resolution. So the analogy there is that we all have complaints in our day and some days worse than others. And we can try not to complain. And that's something that, you know, certainly many of us do. But ultimately, if you have a complaint, that's fine. Now, what are you going to do with it? And so just like in lawsuits, we have to then move past complaints into asking questions, discovery, making motions. The same is true in life. So that's yes. one example. And it's funny, this this example hits really close to home for me. I don't know if I shared this with you before we, we actually started recording, but for the last couple of years, I have thought about what our culture is kind of becoming and how people are getting more and more disconnected, how the fabric is unraveling, so to speak. And I was trying to find my place in how could I serve? Like, what skills do I have? Or what would be a good use of my time to actually chip away at this problem, even in just a small local way? And Mm -hmm. a friend of mine is a volunteer mediator in New York with the New York Peace Institute. And she was telling me about it. And she was like, I think you'd be really great at this. And I thought about it. I thought about it. I thought about it. And finally, I found out that in New York State, for anyone who's outside of this area, there are dispute resolution centers in every single county in the state. And my husband and I were moving and life was just happening and I didn't know where I was going to live for a little bit. And we finally landed and I figured this out. And so for the past, I don't know, handful of months, half year, I've been volunteering as a mediator and I'm like at the baby steps. So they only let me loose in, in small claims court these days, right. but <laughs> So the complaints are are small, but also incredibly fascinating to see what happens between two people that would probably have no interaction other than this court complaint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's wild to see, like, what, what I read as the complaint on paper and then the conversation that unfolds in front of me and how much is not on that piece of paper and how much goes into just some of these even like small, small claims complaints. Yeah. The the context of the complaint is everything. And, and one of the things that I I love that you're acting as a mediator, Kara, I am trained as a mediator as well and do a bit of mediation. Um, It's a, it's a challenge for me because it takes a ton of patience. And for me, (laughs) you know, you know that ultimately where you want to be. And so the process to get there is sort of, um, I have a lot of respect for some of the best mediators out there because they really know how to, and it's an important thing, how to use psychology to get people from the complaint to the resolution because that does take time and it takes steps and it takes some aha moments and all of that is part of sort of getting out of the complaint to where you want to go but you're absolutely right I mean the complaint itself what you write down on a piece of paper if someone were to say to you what are your complaints today they go much deeper than anything you would actually write and because they go deeper until you go deeper, you're not going to find the resolution that's really going to solve the issue. Yeah, it's really wild. In some of the courts, they give us 
you know, as much time unless there's another case waiting. And in another of the courts, it's like, hurry up and get there. And for me as a coach, I was like, we haven't even gotten into the weeds yet. Right. <laughs> like, what's, right. We haven't yeah. even got to like, we don't even have a clue what, what each of their needs are at this point beyond the piece of paper, like the real emotional needs that are pushing everything. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, I don't know that the court system is the place for it. You know, it's a place where it happens because sometimes that's the only place it's going to happen, but it's not, that's not what it's built for. You know, it's built to get justice. Um, the definition of that, of course, is, is ever changing, uh, for many, but it's difficult for people like you and sometimes for people like me who realize that this is more than just a monetary exchange. It goes a whole lot deeper. Absolutely. Heather, you started to also mention one of my favorite things in the universe questions. (laughs) Oh gosh. (laughs) Mine as well. Mine as well, Kara. You know, I always, I often tell this story. Whenever I tell people I'm a trial attorney, somebody invariably says, oh, I should have been a trial attorney. I am really good at arguing. And my point to them is that very little of my job is arguing. Um, Most of my job is asking questions, whether it's at depositions before trial during the discovery process or at trial. You know, if you watch someone on trial, you will see that the lawyers are just asking questions. They give an opening statement, not meant to be an argument, and then a closing argument that at the most is usually about an hour. And the rest of the trial, which is one, two, three, or more weeks, is asking questions. And I think questions are, I mean, I could talk for days on (laughs) questions because they serve so many different masters. Yes. So Heather, here's a question for you. You have to get people talking in a situation or in an environment that is probably far more stressful than I ever do as a coach or a consultant. Mm -hmm. What helps you get people talking when the stress is literally palpable and probably dripping out of the walls? It's a great question, and it's not easy. So at trial, your questions are not meant to get people talking. At trial, your questions are to make points and to challenge. So at trial, the questions are are very focused. They're almost like a surgeon's scalpel. It's during depositions that your questions are meant to get people talking. So it's a little bit less stressful because you're not in the courtroom. You're in a conference room, but it's still not your normal conversational environment. You know, I, um, your question brought to mind a memory. I once had to take a deposition. And so my cases are medical malpractice cases. I represent doctors and hospitals in cases where patients claim that they've been injured as a result of alleged negligence, and that's why they're suing. So a lot of times, Kara, I have to take the depositions of people who have some pretty catastrophic injuries. And this case, the woman was injured and I had to take her deposition and her attorney had warned her ahead of time. Heather is very nice and she's very smiley, but she's not your friend. And I think that my niceness and my smiliness are not contrived. I really like people and I really, I'm not there at deposition to attack anybody or to hurt anyone. I just am curious and I want to get as much information as I can. But I think that my natural uh, understanding and curiosity 
does tend to put people at ease to such a degree that this attorney actually warned his client about it. You know, (laughs) don't let her put you at ease. So it's the opposite of what you do coaching where, you know, if you're, you know, you want to put people at ease, the, the, the other attorney is really trying to stop me from doing that sometimes. Well, and it's interesting because I think I find it's hysterical some days when I'm just out in the world because I'll start talking to the person ringing up my groceries or I'll bump into someone while I'm selecting something in a store and start talking and my husband will come around the corner and he's like, I left you alone for five minutes and the woman is telling you about her bowel movements. Like, what is going on? But I think it feels like to me, and I I don't know the research, and maybe this is something I should read into after I make this assertion, that we don't listen to each other so much now that we're so starved for it that when someone literally puts down their phone, looks at us, and is genuinely listening – we just go to town. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think that that's right. And I think everyone wants, ultimately, people want to tell their story. And they want to know that someone is listening. And so if, then that's what happens at trial. You know, most people don't file lawsuits because they're angry or because they are convinced that, in my cases, the doctor did something wrong. They file lawsuits in large part because they want answers. But I also think it's all, it's in large part because they want to tell their story. And that's why going back to the mediation, that's why mediations can often be so successful because it's an opportunity for people to tell their story and not in the courtroom, but in the confines of a mediation where it's much better told and better heard a lot of times than at trial. So I agree with you 100%, Kara. I think that especially you made the point of putting your phone down. I actually had the pleasure last night of going to a talk by um, Cal Northrup, who is the author of a book called Deep Work, which I loved. Oh, yes. Yeah. He has a new one that just came out today called Digital Minimalism. Oh, my God. I need to get a copy of that immediately. Oh, it's so... he He is brilliant, and he really challenges you to put the phone down. And that's a challenge. You know, it's definitely, I would have, you know, once you, when you go to those types of talks, you leave and you're sort of like, I'm never doing it again. But I can't even say that because with a book coming out in April, part of my job is to be on social media and try to reach people who will be served by the book. And so I've got to find a way to sort of balance for now because he encourages, and I, you know, I urge you to buy the book because I can't do it justice, but he encourages a full 30 days of no social media whatsoever. And then bringing back in only that, which sort of serves you. But the point to your question is that You said putting down the phone. I think that's unusual these days that you have a conversation with someone and you put down the phone. And I think when you do, people notice and they want to tell you their story. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not sure how people observe me, but my thing is if I'm going to be present with someone and I'm going to take time to go have lunch or breakfast or go for a walk or things like that, I am going to be with you. And that may mean I take my phone and I set a timer so that I don't lose track of my entire day because that can happen once I start talking. Right. So there is a lot of, and I try to be really conscious about it, but I'm not sure that people ever notice me doing it. But it's it's always, I get there, 
you know, and whether I have a parking meter or whether I know that person needs to, has a hard stop at noon or I have a hard stop, setting the timer and then phone goes upside down and it goes into do not disturb mode. Like there's nowhere else that I need to be other than with this person for that amount of time that we've sort of agreed on. Yeah, I think you're unusual in that way. I think that, I mean, you know, studies show, Simon Sinek does a great a great talk on this. Uh, you know, when we have dinner with someone and the phone is on the table, our conversations are much less deep than if the phone is in the bag or put away or not brought to the dinner at all. And I think that you are unusual in, you know, making sure that that's the case. I think, you know, I'm going out with a group of women tonight, one of whom was at the talk last night, and I'm sure that we will all put our phones <laughs> away. But but that's not always been the case. I think we're also, I think that there's, the pendulum is swinging too, and people are more aware of the impact that the phone can have. Um, so it's a, it's, it's a challenge. And I think we're all kind of trying to figure it out together. Absolutely. And it's a drug. Like I noticed for Christmas, I gave myself the gift of taking Twitter and Facebook off my phone. So it doesn't mean that I'm I'm not participating or I'm not checking out, like I'm checking offline. Mm-hmm. It just means that I don't need that kind of access and immediacy to it all the time. And I felt like that was the place I was scrolling more mindlessly when I was tired or bored because it yep. was right there. Yeah. But now that I have to go to my computer, it's I fix a cup of tea, I hang out online for 15 or 20 minutes, and that is like I get a tour of who's doing what in the world, and I get to see my friend's kids that are far flung, and I get to enjoy it for the connection piece of it that it is, but it doesn't have to be my overlord anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I actually think that that's going to end up being the answer for me. I have an iPad that I don't bring out with me when I go out. And so my thought is that I will put my social media on that iPad and take it off the phone. I mean, listen, I, I could spend our entire talk talking <laughs> about know. what Cal Newport talked about yesterday because he interviewed for the book some people who worked with Steve Jobs from the beginning. And one of the things that he said is that the phone was never meant to be all that of these apps. It was meant to be a place where you could talk on the phone and listen to music. And then if you were listening to music and the phone rang, the music would stop so that you could pick up the phone. And he loved music and he loved the phone. And he would not, in, in the opinion of some of these people, have liked all of these other things because they were, and I love, of course, that he said this word, inelegant. Ooh. Uh, yeah, I was like, oh, there we go. But, you know, I think that that your solution is one that might work for me. And that is to have those apps on my iPad so that when I sit down and you with your tea, me probably with my coffee and make that conscious decision that I am now spending time on social media as opposed to, and again, I'm going to go off on a whole other issue that he talked about, but that's well worth bringing up is the definition of solitude. So he said that solitude is not when you're alone by yourself in the mountains, because if you're alone by yourself in the mountains, but you're on your phone, you're actually putting other people's thoughts in your head. Solitude can be standing in line at the bank surrounded by people if you're not talking to anyone, looking at your phone or listening to anything and you're alone with your thoughts. And so I think that the consciousness of the moment, like sitting down and saying, okay, now I'm going to spend some time with my social media, instead of just filling my time with social media, there's a difference. 
Yes. Back to the whole conversation. That also means that you're not filling your time with social media when you're supposed to be having interactions with other people. That's where the ping is for me emotionally, where it's, again, the fabric is unraveling. Like we can barely have conversations with people whose viewpoints are even only a half step away these days without being enraged or triggered or like completely worked up in ways. And then like on the flip side, when we are with people and we have this chance to really connect and really be intentional about, can we shift this, right? Can we put this interaction in a better place? And, you know, there, it's, it's almost impossible to quantify that net effect. But if we all walked away from interactions that we had with other people, not frustrated, not angry, not upset, it would be absolutely amazing, right? Like, I I feel like I've been forming over the last decade or so this idea that empathy is a completely untapped resource for us. Yeah. It has to get better when we're actually taking the time to witness each other as humans and connecting in a real way. It, I agree that it, it it does have to get better when we're doing that. I think that the question becomes, our brains are wired to look for an enemy, to look for a threat. And uh, another podcast that I can highly recommend is, um, oh, goodness gracious, Don Miller, who is a fabulous author, and he has uh, something called The Story Brand. So it's called The Story Brand Podcast. And in one of the more recent podcasts, he talked about the need to sort of look for an enemy and then join together with your tribe to fight that enemy. And it's it's your sort of, you know, it's our survival instincts from the beginning. It's what I call in my book, and this is not my word, other people call it as well, but the lizard brain. So we look for an enemy, and then we look for a tribe to join us in fighting that enemy. And so we've got to overcome that with empathy, you know, that you spoke of. But I think that to, to sort of bring this this back around to where we started, it all starts and ends with asking questions. Very much so. You know, empathy is um, best found in asking uh, questions asked with real curiosity and listened to with real curiosity. How do you find that playing out for you in a courtroom? Well, see, in the courtroom, it's no, well, let me back up. When you say that, do you mean empathy or the asking of questions? The asking of questions, like with real intention and a willingness to listen. Well, see, in the courtroom, that's not my job. Okay. My job in the courtroom is to ask questions to win. My job in the courtroom is to ask questions in such a way that the jury, so, you know, everyone has a story. We talked about this earlier, earlier today, and- the patient has a story and I have a story and the jury chooses which story is true ultimately. And so my job at trial is not to have empathy for the people I'm asking questions for. In fact, it's very difficult for me. And it's one of the things that I talk about in the book. It's a real challenge and it's been, um, you know, an existential crisis in a lot of ways because I am very empathetic and I do feel very badly for people who are hurt. And in my cases, people are often catastrophically hurt. And I can express that empathy at deposition. Surely I say, I am so sorry. You know, oftentimes people cry at deposition. They cry at trial. But at trial, my job is not to be empathetic. My job is to win. 
it's one of the few things in life where it is a zero-sum game. The difficulty, though, Kara, and I do want to make this point because it's an interesting one. One of the things that jurors are told in most civil courtrooms is that sympathy, empathy arguably as well, has no place in their deliberations. Right. They are getting that specific instruction to not let their stuff trickle into that space, right? Which is impossible, you know, like... I, so, so say one of my cases involves a catastrophically injured baby who spends every day in the courtroom right there in front of the jurors. I don't care how much we spend time on our phones. I don't care how much you fight over politics on your comment page. You are a human being who will naturally feel sympathy and empathy for that child and for that child's mother, father, sister, brother. So we give that instruction. And when I say we, it's the judge. I don't, you know, sometimes I will remind jurors of that in my closing. But more often than not, I will say to them, that's impossible. You can't walk into that room and all of a sudden become a robot. But what you have to remember is it's not supposed to have a place on the scales of justice. So in the courtroom, I'm not asking questions for empathy. I'm not asking questions. I'm asking questions to win for my client. And the other side is doing the same. So then let's talk about asking questions outside of the courtroom. Yeah. How does that all shift for you? And what are the lessons that we can extract from your trial experience? Outside of the courtroom, I I mean, it's a lot more fun. The questions have... So I, I've, I've really done a deep dive on questions in some of the research, not only for the book, but for my consulting and my keynotes and so forth. And... Questions serve so many purposes. There are studies that show that if you ask questions, people find you more intelligent. There are great studies for your single listeners that show that when it comes to like speed dating, the people who ask the most questions get the most dates. Questions can serve a ton of needs and Empathetic questions are questions that feed off of the answer before. You know, there's another study, and a lot of this is from Harvard Business Review. And if you want sites to these studies, Kara, I'll get them for your show notes. But that would be amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of the studies talked about how we assume that we can put ourselves in someone else's shoes, and that's really sort of the definition of empathy, right? Is seeing something from someone else's perspective. But we're wrong. And most of the time, what we think they're imagining is or feeling is not what they're feeling. And not only does that then get it wrong, but it also pisses people off. Like, you think you know me and you don't. The way to feel empathy and to understand what someone else is feeling is to ask them. And so you've got to just really go into interactions. And this is where, where I do get to show my empathy and grow my empathy is at deposition. Because... And it's something that is one of the skills that young lawyers need experience to get. Because the first deposition that you ever take, you've got your list of questions. I used to, I still handwrite them out, but young lawyers today type them out. And they go through that checklist, oftentimes not listening to the answers deeply enough to then ask the, the follow-up question that would oftentimes get them what they need to find out. Oh, yes. As a coach, I feel like the real work gets done in between my questions. 
right? Like there's what a client comes to me and says they want to work on. I mean, which ultimately is always, I want to move from where I am at A to B in whatever way makes sense for them. And it's, I always have felt like it's my job to understand as close to humanly possible, ask enough questions that it's, it's almost like I could put on a suit that looks like them and play their, the part of them for that day, you know, in these particular pockets. But oftentimes there's so much interesting stuff in what they're saying in between the questions or sometimes what they're not saying. And like, is there a click of the, like their throat? Was that, you know, was that holding back a tear? I'm I'm usually working with people by phone, so I don't always often have the the luxury of of seeing their body language. But just how much lives in that space between the questions that I've thought of before the session starts, if that makes sense. Totally, totally. You know, you can't ask the right questions unless you're listening to the answers. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, one of the things I often say is tell me your story and help me believe. And the way that you help me believe is by asking me the right questions, giving, telling me the right story, telling me a story that I can relate to. You don't know that unless you know me. Yeah. I think that curiosity, and I love the way that the pendulum is swinging with all of this, you know, we've been so sort of hypnotized by and knocked out by technology and social media and all the phone and how and it's great I mean it's been amazing but now we're like you know it's time to have more face-to-face conversations and and you make the point about the phone but tone of voice again another study but there are studies that show that tone of voice can tell us more about the speaker's emotion than all the other senses combined because there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that normally when you're on the phone or really listening to someone's tone of voice, you're not distracted by other things. And two is that as the speaker, I'm not as good at hiding my emotions in my voice as I may have learned to be in hiding it on my face or in my body. So tone of voice is an invaluable way of getting learning empathy and finding the answers to the questions, not only in the content, but in the way that they're answered. This is powerful stuff, Heather. I have a random question because I felt like when you were talking about the pendulum swinging the other way now and and that curiosity and empathy are becoming these things that are getting baked into all sorts of stuff, it makes me think sometimes then can these things be manipulated Well, in what way? Give me a little bit more context for that. So over the last handful of years, I feel like the word authenticity is this thing that's kind of moved from like, say, more of a literal definition of the word to this big nebulous concept that everyone's kind of like, authenticity, authenticity, authenticity. And then I feel like you see how that kind of plays out and then it ends up everyone's just trying to like look authentic instead of just be authentic. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, this is a rabbit hole that I'll gladly go down, but I, um, we may have different opinions on authenticity. I do agree that it's like one of those popular words right now. Um, 
I'm big on looking at the actual definition of words and it's got a million definitions. You know, is it real? Is it genuine? But I don't think that being authentic in under some of the definitions is going to serve you. So for example, and this is not just my idea. Seth Godin is, I think someone who put it into words in a way that it really resonated with me, but I'll give you an example. If I stand before a jury, Kara, the first time I ever tried a case and I stood up and said, I am so nervous today that I am holding onto this paper so that my hands won't shake and my knees are trembling. I almost threw up three times this morning. I really have to go to the bathroom and I was hoping that I would get hit by a bus rather than having to stand in front of you today. That's authentic. That's not going to win me any cases. It's not going to win me any clients. It's not going to serve the need that I'm there for that day. So for me, authenticity and 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 to take it away from the courtroom and into real life, there are studies that show that if you, so for example, you're authentically feeling like crap and someone says to you, how are you feeling today? And you're like, oh, I feel like crap. That is authentic. I don't know how well that serves you. People want to work with people that they like and people tend to like people who bring them up. So I think that for me, when I talk about authenticity with my clients, it's trustworthiness. Are, do you walk your talk? If you make promises, do you keep them? And if you set expectations, do you meet them? Because for me, that's being authentic. It's being credible. But I don't know that I would encourage people. I think being real in your personal relationships is vital. But I think that when we step outside of those relationships, being you, do you want to be you or do you want to be the person that you most want to be? It's a fine line, but I think it's an important one. Yes. And I'm I'm glad you, you brought up Seth Godin because he's someone whose work I follow a lot as well. I think he does a, something really interesting where he talks about these concepts and can still talk about them in a marketing perspective. I feel like from in the coaching universe, like this word authenticity, especially, it begins being used to market or sell things. And I think that's like partly the core of what I'm trying to get at with the original question mm-hmm. is like it can get co-opted. And I I guess I fear that we're having all of this amazing conversation and really making people think about applied curiosity and applied empathy, I fear on some level, will that get slightly co-opted in the way that the word authenticity has in some circles? Take that to its conclusion, though, and what's the problem? I hear you. I think any marketer, any body is going to say, well, this is another word. You know, every year has at the end of the year, they do. Well, what was the word of the year? Yeah, true, uh, true. You know, empathy has been a big word. And I think a lot of times people uh, use that word to their own benefit. Authenticity, curiosity might be the word this year. Analog might be the word this year. But my thought is the more people are using those words, good. You know, it starts conversations. If we're focused on curiosity, that's better than being focused on um, technology to the exclusion of everything else. Uh, it's better than being focused as, focused on money to the exclusion of anything else. So I think all of these words, I mean, I guess I don't 
think that I should co-opt it either. As long as we're having the conversation and I'm learning from you what it means to you and what you're curious about and how curiosity can serve you, then I'm able to ask you better questions and find out more things that I need to know. Good point. Good point. Yeah, I really, I feel like I need to take your your question and really think about it more. Like, why is that grading at me so bad? Like, why am I being so protective of these words, right? Like, it is better that we're all using them. And it's certainly better than nuclear option or things like that. (laughs) Yeah, race. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of words. Um, You know, words, I, I love words. But, you know, words have, have, can really have a lot of meaning. And a lot of people want to own their words and a lot of people should own their words. But words like curiosity, analog, empathy, those words I think are open to everyone. And the more that we talk about them, you know, why are you using this word? What does it mean to you? And, and, and also exerting what it means to us and why we use that word. It's only going to make for more listeners. So I think talking about these words is one thing, but I'm also a firm believer in walking our talk. Mm. And I guess you have such a great skill set for maybe helping educating me and the listeners. How can we do a better job applying both curiosity and applying empathy? Let's start with curiosity because empathy is... um Empathy comes from curiosity and it comes from uh, the ability to ask those questions so that you truly see things from the other side. But curiosity, you know, it doesn't come naturally to everybody. So one of the things that I that I ask my clients to do is to go into an interaction with three questions that they're truly curiously want to have answered. So not like, what is your name or what's the itinerary for today? (laughs) But, you know, something real that they're really curious about. Because in the moment of a conversation, our minds wander. We are all self-absorbed ultimately. So we get to like, what am I having for dinner? And why didn't that guy call? And what time was I supposed to be home? And so if you have those three questions written down and in your back pocket or in the back of your mind, it has you then listening for the answers. So that's like a concrete thing that you can do to improve your curiosity. The other concrete thing that you can do to improve your curiosity is really tune into the tone of voice of the speaker. Because then you're all there. You know, I'm rereading The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle right now. And, you know, he talks about the, the power of now and being in the moment. And that is easier to do when you are putting all of your senses into that moment. So really listening to not just the words, but how they're being said can help you to be more present and therefore sort of pique your curiosity a little bit better. Got it. Those are great tips. Listen, it's none of this stuff is easy. You know, like that's one thing I think that anyone who's ever written a book or do the work that we do, it's um, we do it for ourselves as well. You know, like I, I reread the book in preparation for some of the speeches that I'm doing and I'm like, oh my goodness, I need to work on this one for sure. You know, I am not, you know, I am curious, but oftentimes distracted. I am empathetic, but oftentimes self-absorbed. 
You know, I, nobody is perfect. We're all just doing the best we can with what we have in a given day. And so these tools, the thing I like about those tools is that they're concrete. It's not like go into that meeting and be curious. It's that it's, you know, what are your three questions? Write them down, think about them, make sure they're curious questions, and then use them in the conversation. And open-ended questions. I like that you were like, not what's, what's their name? What day did this happen? Like, what are the kind of questions you want to write to open the door to understanding whoever's sitting across from you? Yeah. And that's a, that's a really great point that you make there because open-ended questions, you know, it's a, it's a big part of my book because in court we use questions in a very specific way. And so oftentimes if it's a hostile witness, we will purposefully ask them yes or no questions because we don't want them to have the opportunity to gain the jury's empathy and, or to explain, you know, there's a, there's a saying that we often say in, in legal work that's, that's don't ask a question you don't know the answer to. And that is not true in discovery In discovery, you're supposed to ask every question because you want to get every possible answer. But then at trial, you are trying to mold the answers to fit your story. And so you don't ask open-ended questions because then your mold is broken and you aren't supposed to ask leading questions because you're not supposed to put the words in the answerer's mouth. But outside of the courtroom, you are 100% correct that you don't want to ask closed questions. You want questions that actually allow the answerer to give you nuggets that you wouldn't have otherwise found. Heather, when you're talking about what's happening in the courtroom and how you're so strategically asking questions, and I felt like even when I was benevolently stalking you on your site <laughs> and, and thinking, like, what are the perspectives that Heather can bring around communication that I can't teach people and right. that I have stuff to learn, too? And the word persuasion kept coming up in my head. How can we use what you've learned in your 20 years of experience to help us consider when and how we can shift perspectives in a situation? You know, persuasion is, there's two parts of persuasion that I stress in the book and in, and in my work. One is credibility because you have no persuasive authority over anyone unless they find you credible. They have to trust you in to some degree. Now, for me, I talk about credibility before I talk about trust because my jurors don't know me well enough to trust me. I am not allowed to have any, I get to talk to them during jury selection and ask them questions. And then once the trial starts, I'm not allowed to really even say good morning to them in the hallway. There's supposed to be no interaction whatsoever um, until the case is over. So the, how, how can they trust me? They don't know me, but they can find me credible. They can know that if I say something, and and I build that credibility throughout the case. So if I say something in my opening, I know that if I say they're going to see it, they're going to see it. And if I say that they're going to hear it, they're going to hear it. If I set an expectation, I am hell-bent on meeting that expectation. And if I make a promise, I want to keep it. And here's a big part of that, Kara, that, you know, things happen. If I can't keep my promise or meet my expectation, I say that to them as well. I acknowledge it when it happens because without credibility, they're never going to be persuaded by me. 
So credibility, I think, is one of the key points of persuasion. And then from there, it gets back to what we've already been talking about, and that is knowing the listener. So uh, I actually started a blog that I do a, a video blog every Thursday on my site. And this week, I'm talking about the TV show Bull, because do you know that show? I haven't seen it. Can you give us a little it's, background? Yeah, it's. Um, I actually don't watch it because it's really unrealistic. But it's. Uh, it's a lot of people love it. It's about a guy who is a jury consultant. I think it's actually based on Dr. Phil, who used to be a jury consultant, and that's how he met Oprah. Whoa, um, blowing my mind in all sorts of ways today, Heather. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, let's go back. <laughs> he was, um, and I, and you know, your listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm almost positive he was a jury consultant. You know, when Oprah was sued, this is this might be before your time, but she was sued for by the beef industry for doing an episode about like pink slime. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, yes. I'm almost positive that Dr. Phil was a jury consultant on that case. And that's how they got to know each other. And then she had him on a show and the rest is sort of history for Dr. Phil. But I believe that he is a producer of this show, Bull, which is about a guy who is a jury consultant. And the reason it's hard for me to watch is because it's so unrealistic. Like the questions that he asks of the jury when he's choosing a jury are questions I would never be able to ask ever, ever, ever. But it's an interesting show to make the argument that I often want to make with my clients now, which is that he finds out everything he can about the juror so that when the lawyer is arguing the case or asking questions, they can do so in a way that speaks to that juror because that's what's persuasive. We are all ultimately looking out for ourselves and our family and the things that are important to us are what resonates with us most. So to be persuasive, you want to know what the person you're trying to persuade cares about. And then you can make your argument something that they can understand. Yes. I feel like this point on helping them to understand and and foster that connection, I see that in my world. Like if I'm doing a speaking event or I'm working with someone one-on-one, I'm going to speak to someone who I know is a scientist probably in a different way or distill the ideas down in a different way than I would say, ask a question of someone who's a yoga teacher. Absolutely. Right. Cause it's, to me, it's more important that the, the kernel of the conversation or there's that meeting of the minds happens versus the exercise of me having to switch up my language a little to be able to get that understood. Yeah, I think that that's true. And I think that it goes deeper than just like what they do for a living. It's also like, you know, little things like um, what's important to them. Now, these are the questions that he gets to ask on the show that I never would get to ask. Like, <laughs> that no, you'd be laughed out of the courtroom if oh you asked. God, there's no way. I, it's, it's, uh, it's enough to make you shake your head in disbelief when you're watching as a trial lawyer. But but yes, I mean, you're right. You you do talk to people differently depending on where they're coming from. If you're a good communicator and the more you know about a person, the better you can tailor your story or questions to that person to help them understand. And that's your job as a persuader. Got it. And I want to point back because you mentioned kind of a really quick list of things what I was hearing was asking good questions, having questions ready, right? Maybe it's three, mm-hmm. maybe it's 300, but like having right. good open-ended questions ready. 
be incredible. And then you shared really quick, but I want to make sure that people heard this and get this. Things like just being dependable. I mean, that's the word that came to mind when I sort of heard that list. Mm -hmm. Do what you say you're going to do. And when you can't communicate that too. Yep. It's it's huge. It's a huge part of my work as an advocacy consultant is teaching, especially businesses, about credibility. Because, and again, I'm looking at my bookshelf, so a lot of these books are coming up. But there's a book called uh, The Trust Factor, The Science of Creating High-Performance Companies by Paul J. Zak, Z-A-K. But he talks about the value of trust. When people who work together or in a family trust one another the bottom line goes up. Happiness goes up. People feeling rewarded and like they're in the right place. All of those things improve when people trust one another. And so, yes, it is dependability. I think that that's a good word. There's a lot of things that make up trust and trust takes time. You know, like, you know, like with your husband, the first date that you went on, you didn't trust him yet. It took many dates and consistent behavior over time builds trust. But there is a way for a business or an individual to build credibility relatively quickly. And that's what I have to do at trial. Some of my cases only take a day. Other cases take, you know, can take up to a month, I think is the longest trial that I've ever had. Some lawyers have much longer. But during that time, you can build credibility by doing the things that we just discussed. If I I tell the ladies and gentlemen of the jury that they're going to see something, you had best believe that they're going to see it. And if I say they're going to hear something, they're going to hear it. And on those rare occasions when I don't meet, because here's the thing, Kara, if I say that in my opening, that you're going to see evidence that X, Y, and Z, and you're going to hear so-and-so say A, B, and C, and I don't meet that, or if the opposing attorney doesn't meet that, keep that expectation, you better believe I'm going to point it out in my closing. You know, he told you you'd see this and you didn't. He promised you this and didn't didn't keep that promise to you. Because by losing that credibility on one point, your whole case may have lost credibility and your ability to persuade is out the window. So if you can't keep a promise or meet an expectation, you need to you need to face that head on. And that's true for businesses as well. I mean, we see that with these big big businesses that fail. Rather than accept responsibility for not meeting expectations and keeping promises, if they just stick their head in the sand, they lose credibility. Yes. And I do think you're so correct. And I've never really put it together until you said this, like how important that dependability is to feeding credibility and trust. Oh, for sure. Right? That, And I'm, I'm thinking of it, and there's like a thousand scenarios playing out in my own head where I've been more disappointed with a person for not communicating that they dropped the ball with me mm-hmm. than the damage done by actually just dropping the ball. Like, yeah. the ghosting phenomenon drives me nuts. Or, or when people, you ask people something, and they don't want to just communicate the word no back to you. Well, and see, this is funny because it takes you back to authenticity. A lot of the reason that people don't want to communicate when they haven't met expectations or kept promises is because they're not, you know, I I tend towards the word vulnerability. It's really vulnerable to say, I mean, gosh, it's super vulnerable at trial 
for me to say, you know, ladies and gentlemen, you know, I promised you this and this didn't happen and here's why. Like, you know, the temptation is always to just hope that they don't remember. <laughs> don't, you know, and that's the temptation in life. Maybe they won't remember that I promised to be there at four o'clock. You know, maybe they won't remember that I'm always late. <laughs> but it's uh, pretending something didn't happen loses credibility. And when you lose, I always say, when you lose credibility, you've lost. You've lost the case for sure. True. And you can take that nugget right there and extrapolate it to an infinite number of interactions outside the courtroom and how much relationships get damaged just by thinking maybe they forgot, maybe they won't remember this, maybe they didn't see it or notice this. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of the people, a lot of the companies that I work with, the individuals at the companies will come up to me and say, that's where we need help. They set expectations and don't meet them. And then they, we don't never know why. And I think that that's where, you know, words like transparency, which I, I don't think transparency is always the answer. But when it comes to this particular issue, I do think it's the answer. You've got to be able to let, you know, it's a, say, it's a story that people often tell when you're on a plane and the plane's delayed, the expectation isn't being met. You expected to take off at eight o'clock in the morning and now it's eight 30 and you're 12th in line and a promise that you're going to be there on time isn't being kept. But if the pilot gets on and says to you, you know, we had to de-ice the plane or, you know, whatever the case mm-hmm. might be, it doesn't change the fact that you're going to be late, but you now all of a sudden feel differently about the entire endeavor. Yes. And these are the kinds of of things that endlessly fascinate me. And it's funny to hear you talking about establishing credibility or reestablishing credibility in the corporate space. And I always think business's first line of defense, or not even defense, I mean, the, the first place that a business can sort of regain this is in client service positions. And yet so many companies staff those with people that just don't even care. It's just a job. They they don't and it's in these terrible working conditions sometimes where they're, you know, in a I've been in a call center before where it's like these fluorescent lights, barely any windows, someone going around, you know, nudging people to get off the phone faster. And that is just a really simple way where businesses can say, look, you're unhappy. We didn't deliver what we promised. Here's how we're going to correct it. Right. I mean, I, I do a lot of work with call centers. Do you really? Yeah, a lot of work. And I love the work because I think that their job is so thankless. And sometimes just the fact that the company wants to do the work with them is a huge boost to morale. You know, that like someone cares enough about us to want to invest in someone coming in and talking to us or learning a little bit about us, asking us questions and so forth. But yes, you're right. I mean, that is the first line of your company's credibility. Those people that you hire and then sort of shove into a room sometimes without, and the best companies don't. I mean, I work with, and and imagine, Kara, you know, we talk about it in business, but the people who answer the phone at hospitals or doctor's offices. So not only are they talking to someone who probably got a great big bill that insurance isn't going to pay, and there's the frustration of that, but the person's also in pain. 
Mm-hmm. And the person on the phone has to have empathy for that and have some sort of credibility and build all of that. I mean, it is fraught with the issues that we've talked about today. And I always find it so fascinating. I'm sure you've read Delivering Happiness, right? Yes, yes. Like that is a book that I go back to all the time in all sorts of situations as kind of food for inspiration about doing things differently, right? Like, okay, I'm trying to understand where this person's coming from. I'm trying to really understand their perspective, but then also kind of challenging myself to think about, but how can we make this situation better? Like, how can it be more of a win-win situation? I know part of your world is in a zero-sum world, but I guess like I get to, I get to dwell in this, this win-win side of the house where it's like, this doesn't have to be a shitty exchange for everyone involved. That's right. No, and most <laughs> most things in life aren't a zero-sum game. Life itself isn't a zero-sum game. You know, I, I believe in an abundant universe, and I think that I love the saying that, you know, not only is there enough pie to go around, but I have a bakery in my backyard. I'll just make more. <laughs> And so I think that that is true. And in, and in these situations, you know, it is win-win because if if the interaction between customer, client, patient, and call center agent is a good one, all of the humans leave that interaction happier and in a better place. And this is where I get kind of Pollyanna about this and think if everyone's basic, ordinary, mundane transactions, like calling a doctor's office, renewing a driver's license. If we can walk away from some of those baseline need to do kind of things in a better state of mind, how can that play out over the course of the remaining 24 hours, or at least the, you know, 16 or 18 hours that people are probably conscious no, I, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, you know, it's that whole pay it forward. Every interaction impacts the next interaction. So if you can improve one interaction, then, you know, that call center agent's going to go home. And it, it, their jobs are a little bit more complicated than that. They need, yes. a, need autonomy is really important in having some sense of ownership of the call and all of that. All of those things have been proven to improve their, not only their performance, but also their retention and staying in jobs. But it's the same for all of us. You know, ultimately, we all just want to be appreciated. We all just want to be heard. We all just want to be understood. We all just want to feel safe. And so all of the stuff, everything that we're talking about today gets back to those things. They're human needs that we all have. Heather, I hear you mention wanting to be heard and understood. And there was something else that kept popping into my brain when I was getting ready for this interview. And it's about assumptions. How dangerous do you think assumptions are or how much of a barrier do you think they are to empathy, to communication? You know, they're a huge, a huge barrier to connection. You know, if you've read the four agreements, and I know I'm sure you have, Kara, don't assume anything. But it's, uh, I, I think the problem is often that we don't know when we're assuming. You know, it, I, and, and sometimes... 
it's easy to say don't assume anything, but there's so much in life that we do assume just in order for our day to go. We assume that the plane is going to leave on time. We assume that the person who's picking us up, there'll be an Uber available to pick us up. So there's a lot of assumptions that we make in day-to-day life that's just part of living. It's when it comes to our interactions with one another and especially the, you know, the, the interactions with the people that we most have to connect with that we then have to put the like screeching halt on the assumptions and open back up to curiosity. What have you found has been helpful with that? Like if we could flesh out maybe some actionable things that people listening can use to kind of help dismantle those assumptions or understand them or be aware of them. Where do you think the problem lies? Let me start there. I don't know that it's a problem. I mean, our assumptions are based on our lives, right? So, you know, I, I'm 46 years old. In those 46 years, I have developed a host of assumptions about the way that life goes. And I don't know that that's a problem. Like I said, that's how I function. You know, I go through assuming that when the light, I live in the heart of Manhattan. I assume that when the white thing shows up on the um, crosswalk that I can go. That's an assumption that I make that I rely upon in order to function in my day. But it's when your assumption starts to um, hurt you or hurt the people around you that you need to second guess yourself. And that's, that's a question of being aware. And I think it gets back to some of the things that we talked about about an hour ago, like being present in the moment, not on your phone, not being aware of where your assumptions might be incorrect, you know, where the assumption so if you're on the plane and you happen to hear the stewardess talking about the fact that you're delayed being aware enough of that to say oh gosh that assumption might be wrong and same thing in interactions I might sit down with somebody an older white gentleman who is from the middle of the country and make certain assumptions about him if he's wearing a make America great hat again and in conversation with him, I need to be open to the idea that those assumptions might be wrong. And the best way to be open to that is to be present, to not let that assumption allow me to get on my phone or mentally on my phone and away from the conversation. Got it. So I'm hearing awareness is really driving that. One of the things that I probably drive people in my life nuts about is calling those kinds of things out. Like when someone makes some huge mental leap that is unfounded by lack of information or maybe incorrect information, I'm that person in a conversation that's constantly like, um, wait, can we step back? Like that feels like a big assumption right there. Right. Or that feels that feels like a giant mental leap we just took. I'm you know, can I ask some more questions about that before we get our feathers all ruffled or make then a whole bunch more judgments about a situation that may be unfounded? I guess what advice would you have? Because I I feel like I don't see people doing that enough. Like, I feel like a lot of people like read a headline of an article, get really enraged about something and may not have even read the whole story. And I think that plays out in a lot of conversations. I guess, do you see that in your world? And what can help? It's so funny that I mean, there's so much in that question that <laughs> that brings things up. Because I, I do think that um, 
you know, knowledge is power. The more that you know, you know, especially I think of the courtroom, like if I just read the headlines of the medical peer review articles that support my case, I would be utterly in trouble in the courtroom. (laughs) You know, I've got to cross-examine experts on these articles. I darn well better know them. And I've had the situation where the experts haven't read the articles and I have, and that's tons of fun for me and ultimately ends in a really good result for me. So I can imagine that's helpful. Oh, so it, and it's a lot of fun. You know, it's a lot of fun when that happens, but I think that you're right. I think that many of us just see the headline and come to conclusions that support our worldview. And I don't know that we're going to be able to stop people from doing that. But there's a gentleman that I met last night at this talk that I went to who's got a website and it's in the midst of a name change. But um, I think it used to be called like Really Reddit, but now it's going to be called Read Up. But the point of it is that it's they have found through their technology that the majority of people who comment on articles like in the New York Times or the New York Post or the Wall Street Journal actually haven't read the article. And this technology allows for people to know whether or not the person who's commenting has actually read the article. And I think that Whoa. that's fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's uh It's fascinating, you know, because they can clearly do that. You know, they can tell how much time you've actually spent with the article before you comment on it um, and whether or not you've scrolled down. You know, there's technology that can do that. But that's going to inform the conversation because all of a sudden the people who haven't read it are going to lose a whole lot of their credibility, getting back to that important point. And if I know, so for example, Kara, if you're, you're making an argument and I know you haven't read the article that you're basing the argument on, you have no persuasive authority with me because you've lost your credibility. And so I think that, you know, testing the knowledge of the argument is good. The hard thing about it, like when you talk about, you know, saying, I think you're making a really big assumption here. I loved that you then said, can I ask you some questions? Because I feel like if you go in to someone and and say, you know, you're making assumptions, that was a big leap. You can put people on the defense really quickly and, and I've, I've learned this lesson the hard way, Heather. This took years. To, <laughs> I was like, there's got to be a better way to do what, get where I want to go without pissing the other person off. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's the same thing that we've been talking about all this time. And that's questions. You know, yep. help me understand. What do you think about this? Um, I think that, you know, questions is a great way to overcome some of that. And to sort of, and, and, and also acceptance that you're not going to oftentimes convince people, but just having the conversation might let a crack of light in and that crack of light, who knows what that crack of light can do. You know, I was fortunate enough. I do some TV stuff. Um, you know, I host for Dan, but I also do like CNN and Fox news and Fox business and MSNBC. I'm an equal opportunity talking head. And in doing that, I see different perspectives, but one of my favorite things, and I don't think they've made it into a regular um, bit, but I really hope that they do, 
it was for MSNBC and they asked me to come in and I have a friend who's a legal analyst for them. His name's Danny Savalos. And they asked us to take a side on a particular issue. This was during the time of Kavanaugh's hearings. And so it happened to be nothing specific to him, but whether or not Supreme Court justices should have term limits. And so they asked me to argue that they should. And they asked Danny to argue that they should not. And we each argued, gave our talk for a minute or so. And then they asked us to switch sides. Ooh, awesome. Awesome. I wish they would do that on every show. I mean, listen, it, it the problem with that is it doesn't feed the monster yeah. of cable news, you know, but it's fascinating because if you see smart people who are able to argue both sides of a position, all of a sudden you see that maybe there's more than one side to the position. That is amazing. I would have loved to have seen that. Is it somewhere Uh, that we can find it? I don't even know if they ever, they were testing it. And it's funny, they had tested it with other people before us. And they actually said to us afterwards, and it was just a short, it wasn't like a whole show. It was just a segment on the show. But they said to us afterwards that we were the best at it. And I think, Kara, that's because we're lawyers. You know, part of my job in preparing for trial is knowing what the other side is going to say. I know their arguments. I know their case. Because until I do, I have no um, knowledge to counter it. And so we lawyers, and also, to be honest, I don't pick my clients. The cases that I get, I'm, I'm assigned my cases through the doctor's insurance company. The lawyers on the other side get to pick their clients. So because of that, I have to be able to argue things that might not immediately show themselves to me. So my point is that the people at uh, MSNBC were like, you know, you guys were really good at this, but I think it's because we're lawyers. And so it's easier for us than for the pundits that are used to being entrenched in their position and not seeing both sides. That is so fascinating. I feel like there should be a new show that's just... I agree. I was like, I sent them an email afterwards. If any TV execs are listening, (laughs) I I am all in on this because I do feel like... You know, the problem is that I don't know that it would get the rating. Although everyone that I've talked to about it has said the same thing that you have. Like, that's fascinating. And I'm going to bring up another book, but I need to see if I can find it. Oh, so there's a book called Uncensored by Zachary R. Wood. That's very good. Zachary R. Wood is a um, young African-American man who grew up very, very, very poor in a really difficult family situation and um, brilliant, brilliant kid and ended up going to, um, uh, I forget what college it is, but a liberal arts college. And while there, he started a um, an extracurricular group that did exactly what we we're just talking about, that tried to see both sides and he tried to bring up some difficult conversations. And I believe he is now working for The Guardian and doing articles similar to what we just talked about, where he really dives into both sides of a situation. But I think it would be great to have it on cable news because it would allow those audiences to open to the possibility of something different. And especially what you're describing in such a small soundbite, right? Like where you were able to switch sides so quickly, you know, in two minutes, like it might actually get watched. Yep. Yeah. That is so fascinating. Yeah, it was, uh, it was definitely fun. It was also hard. 
you know, they're like switch sides. I'm like, I'm like, I'm both me and I. Like, like, wait a minute, ah. what are we arguing? I, they're like arguing the wrong. Like one, they had to do a different take because I started arguing my first position instead of my second because you know you go. They were having a switch back and forth relatively quickly, um, so it was hard. But it was definitely it's something I often think about because it it does it it, it speaks to a lot of the issues that we've been talking about. I am so fascinated with this. I feel like I could ask you. 10 billion questions just on that little like experience. <laughs> We're going to have to do another show. I know. And this is, this honestly, Heather, has been such a great experience. I can't thank you enough for, for being here and taking the time. And I feel like you and I have spoken really quickly and there's, we've like sort of shot through a lot of things. Yeah. But there is a lot of stuff that is very actionable for the listeners. And I am so psyched because this is something I definitely don't have your pedigree and your education around this. Oh. But it's something that for years now, I've just been feeling like this is how I want to contribute. This is how I want to be out in the world. This is how I these are the behaviors that I want to model. This is how I want to model communication. This is how I want to model empathy. This is how I want to model being present. So hearing, like, I feel like I could take a trip in your brain for probably like a week and still not be bored. <laughs> well, I, I can tell you that you are, you are walking the talk, Kara. I mean, what you're doing with this podcast, the conversations you're having, the thoughtfulness. I do a bit of, I have my own podcast. I do a bit of guesting on, you know, as a guest on podcasts and doing more in preparation for the book. And I don't know that I've ever encountered a host as prepared and as curious as you are. So, you know, the, the, you bring a lot to what you do and to your audience and you should be proud of that. Thank you so much, Heather. And thank you for noticing. I feel like I geek out about wanting people to feel relaxed when they get here, even though I can't sort of sit with them in person. And like, you know, you and I were exchanging emails, really. You know, we right. got introduced by Minda, and then we've just been exchanging emails. And I've always tried to think, like, what would I want to feel comfortable? I just want to know what's going on when I get to that, a podcast. <laughs> that's it. That's it. That's absolutely applied not. empathy. Yep. You, you want to know what to expect. You want to you want to have expectations, and you want to have that those expectations to be met. And you really set great expectations. Um, appropriate, ex you know, this is what time I'm going to call this is how, you know, it, it is, those are the things the, the way that you talk about communication on the podcast is the way that you communicate around the podcast and your audience should know that. Thank you for noticing and dialing that up. And I guess enough stroking of Kara's ego. Um, <laughs> I want to ask you one more question, Heather. What do you most want La Vital Core Salon listeners to know or to take away from our conversation today? I want everyone to recognize that this stuff isn't easy. Nobody gets it right all the time. It doesn't come easy for any of us. You know, the reason I named the book The Elegant Warrior is because the word elegant, the root of it is to choose. And I think that, you know, you choose your elegance. You choose those things that are most important to you and then keeping those choices in mind when things get hard. 
So if communication is important to you, then when conversations get heated and empathy starts to go out the window, you maintain consistency and you maintain your loyalty to that choice. But I want to make sure that no one steps away from this conversation thinking, well, it's easy for her or, you know, you mentioned my pedigree. None of that makes it any easier. Every trial, whether it's in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom, is hard. And I don't always get it right. And I try to be honest about when I haven't gotten it right. And I try to make it up to the people that I may have hurt along the way. But all that we can do is our best and get as much knowledge as we can to come back at it and do it better the next time. Heather, I am so glad you made that point about it being easy. Because I think that's something people really, really deeply needed to hear. And I don't know about you, but... It takes me a long time, too. Like, you know, we we talked about the welcome mat that I tried to create for all of my podcast guests before they literally show up on the, the phone call. Right. That took a lot of time. Yeah. Like, that wasn't something that I just, like, threw together haphazardly. It was recognizing that every human and every situation is totally unique and then really looking at what are all the touch points? Where are all the interactions where this other person and I connect? And what decisions do they have to make at each point? And how can I just give them the information that they need before they have to worry about asking for it? Yeah, I mean, you clearly put work into it. And it's work for all of us. It, it's This stuff doesn't come easy, but it's worth it. I mean, it makes the podcast what it is. It makes my work what it is. It makes my days what they are. So, you know, I think that it's um, it's not easy, but it's worth it. Sorry, I totally lied, and I'm going to ask a follow-up question again. <laughs> so there goes my credibility, people. I've totally shot it because I couldn't <laughs> contain my curiosity. Heather, do you have any good stories where you've seen this pay off? right? Like I just mentioned the effort I put in. I can only imagine the effort that you have to put in both as a consultant and also as a trial lawyer. Are there any stories that really stand out that you're like, this was definitely worth it? I, I, the, the one that immediately comes to mind is one of my most proud courtroom moments. So I had the privilege of representing a very famous doctor and he had written And when I say hundreds of articles, I'm not exaggerating about a particular complication. In the case where he was sued, that complication had come to pass. Now, the thing is, Kara, unfortunately in medicine, these complications happen and they happen in the absence of negligence. They happen even when everyone does everything right. And this particular doctor had spent his life trying to completely get rid of this complication that medicine had not yet been able to get rid of. And in this case, it was statistically just happened to be one of the cases where it happened and then the patient sued. So in preparation, the only way, arguably, the only way that either side can win a medical malpractice case is if the jury believes the experts who tell them about what the standard of care is for the doctor and how it was broken. And the expert against my doctor got up and said that my doctor should have done X, Y, and Z to avoid this complication. And I sort of referred to this earlier. I had read all 100 and something 
of my doctor's articles. And this isn't easy stuff for me. I, I don't have a medical background. I mean, now 20 years in, my brother makes fun of me and says, I think I can deliver babies. But, um, <laughs> but this is, you know, this, this was, this was a complicated medical issue. These articles were not written for a layperson. They're written for a doctor. And I had done like folders that were color coded with tabs and it was all over. I remember prepping in my old apartment. It was all over the floor and I was reading the articles and putting them in the order that I wanted to use them. And then when I got to the courtroom, I was so prepared and so present and so I had gotten good sleep the night before. I had had a good breakfast. You know, all of the things that you have to do to be at your best. And I put those folders down and I was able to, you know, um, I, I'm going to butcher his last name, but Chikoslovic, the guy who talks about flow. I oh, Mihai Michetsky. Yeah. Yes. Mihai Michetsky. Cheeks me high or something. Yeah, it's a difficult last name. But I was in flow. I didn't need to look at my folders. I knew those articles left and right and up and down and was able to really challenge this expert who I referred to him before. He hadn't read those articles. And the jury loved it. They were laughing and they went, the judge said, Do you need a break? And they were like yelling, No, no, let her finish, let her finish. Um, <laughs> But that is a moment where I knew I had given everything I had to be in that moment. And then I was there present. I wasn't even really thinking about how it was being received by the jury. I was just completely in asking these questions to help the jury believe my story. Wow. And to be in flow, like in that situation with that technical of material like I can only imagine like how good that felt right like oh every bell and whistle and, like oh yeah had to be going off inside you yeah for sure for sure I remember when it was over it you know just like just like those moments when you're in flow when it was when the cross-examination was over I was sort of like oh my gosh what just happened <laughs> <laughs> did that go okay you know it was definitely uh an out-of-body moment but it it didn't it didn't come easy I mean, just like you said, that the reason that I brought that story up is it's it's similar to you talking about what you do for this. It doesn't come easy. And there are other days when I've prepped and for whatever reason, that doesn't happen. And so even when you do everything you can to make the results be what you want them to be, sometimes they just won't. And you have to learn to get up and do it again the next day. And just be with that discomfort. Like some... Com- it doesn't mean that every conversation you're going to have in life is going to be smooth if you apply curiosity and apply empathy and ask questions and actively listen. It doesn't right. mean that I don't find myself in conversations that go sideways some days. It just means like, okay, it's another chance to use those tools. Yep, that's right. And to hone them, to make them better. Because those tools are, you know, those tools can always be improved. Oh, my gosh. I think after just a week's worth of mediation training, I'm like, wow, nine years of having private conversations and trying to understand people's needs and motivations. And I was like, wow, here's all the stuff I don't know. Isn't this amazing? (laughs) (laughs) Another thing to learn. Yep. I'm like, oh, I've got my work cut out for me then. (laughs) But Heather, this 
has been such a treat. Like, I can't think of anyone I've talked to that seems to not only geek out, but be so skilled and knowledgeable with the application of these topics that make my tail wag. So, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. It's been it's been a fabulous conversation from the minute that you reached out. I knew it would be and I appreciate the opportunity. Isn't Heather awesome? Thank you for tuning in and checking out this conversation that Heather and I made together. You can find all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode over at levitalcoresalon.com. If you dug this episode and what Heather is creating in the world, please show your support by sharing this podcast with one woman you know. Please show your support by sharing this podcast episode with at least one woman you know picking up a copy of Heather's book, The Elegant Warrior. And you can follow Heather on social media. She's on Twitter and Instagram as I'm Heather Hansen. If you want future episodes of this podcast emailed right to your inbox twice a month, then text the word SALON to 444-999. Again, that's the word SALON to 444-999. Merci beaucoup to Minda Hearts for introducing Heather and I, because now I'm just a little bit fangirl of Heather and all of the work that she's doing. Merci beaucoup to Craig Snyder. Merci beaucoup to Darlene Victoria, who helps me cross all of my digital T's and dot all of my digital I's. Merci beaucoup to Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the theme song. And don't forget, You deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.